Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good morning. I want to try and make this a salon style feel. It's, it's been billed as a, a conversation about painting by two of the most illustrious painters in the world today, uh, which is why I'm not in the middle. I'm trying to keep myself to one side. Also, both Bryce and Gary have agreed that um, if we find the time there'll be questions from the floor at the end. In some ways um, we're going to try and explore overlap and similarity but of course both Bryce Mild and Gary Hume are, are totally different and separate artists. Bryce is seen as emerging out the tradition of minimalism which we may get on to discussing but it's really lyrical abstraction for which I think he's most celebrated now. Uh, Peter Sheldall said in 2006 that he was perhaps the most profound and important abstract painter of the last four decades. I suppose you'd say five decades now. Um, his education at Boston, then Yale, um, in the early 60s, led to a career that has involved now showing in most of the major institutions in the world. I can't find a single institution that doesn't own his work. Um, and he, apart from being honoured by a myriad of organisations, the American Academy of Arts and Letters, um, he's also, if you'll excuse the cliché, an artist's artist, a painter's painter. His most recent exhibition that opens today at Kogosian is an extraordinary installation of 10 paintings, um, terre verte, using, well, I was going to say the same pigment, but actually it's 10 industrial variations of green earth pigment painted in Bryce's traditional veils and veils of paint. We'll, we'll get on to exactly what that is and how that, how that manifests itself shortly. But it's an incredibly... Uh, moving and immersive experience, as is Gary's latest exhibition that opened uh, yesterday at Spruik Margers, but moving in, in a very different kind of way. It's called Mum, and there are some paintings, Gary's, I say, trademark household gloss on aluminium, but also on paper. So there's a kind of formal or technical shift, but also there's a kind of meditation on mortality and I think there's kind of memories from childhood to now that explore his relationship with his mother. Gary was um, born in about, the, well, just the year before Bryce went to Yale, just to give you a sort of perspective. And his first uh, public show in 1988 was the year that Bryce was in the Whitney Biennial. This was when Gary was in Freeze. And since then, uh, Gary has shown in the British Pavilion. He's won the Jerwood Painting Prize. He's been honoured with a retrospective at Tate Britain. And of course, above all, he's a Royal Academician. To kick things off, both of you, Bryce, Gary, I just wanted to um, ask both of you to remember, if you would, when was it that you first realised you wanted to be a painter? Bryce. In the second half of my senior year of high school, I had always wanted to go into the hotel business and looked at hotel schools and I <laughs> And this is, that was not for me. And uh, I had taken to cutting school and hitchhiking into the city and going to museums. And I would do a museum and then a Bridget Bardot movie. <laughs> and then try to avoid getting on the same train as my father going on. And uh, it was just, you know, I was just going into it for the fun of it. No talent or none of that, you know, background stuff. You know. When did you feel that you had your own voice or vision as a painter? Or is that, a, is that the kind of question to which the answer is, I still don't? I mean, we think you do, but when did it become clear that you, you had a kind of singular vision or voice? I, I think at Yale, I had this great teacher, you know, uh, they were all great, but uh, Esteban Vicente, and he said, um, you've just really painted yourself into a corner. And uh, it looks like you're having a good time with it. And that was sort of when you, you, know, you knew you were really uh, involved. Gary, what about you? Um, I started to become a painter when, really because I couldn't do much else, because I couldn't bear being employed by anybody. And, um, but the thing that fascinated me was um, the amount of problems. There's just so many problems, um, and they're all solvable. Um, and they're solvable with no proof, only solvable by your feeling about looking at it. And I just, and of course, 
you start off terrible. I mean, maybe there are some artists who just are brilliant, and there are some who just are utterly brilliant, but I, I was completely useless. Um, but um, I, I, was, I was quite bold, so I didn't, I didn't mind making terrible mistakes, and in fact, I quite enjoyed making the worst things possible to give me the freedom to make something else, to be able to not compete, really, be the worst in the class. Um, and yeah, and so it's the problems that are just fascinating that um, trying to move around a rectangle. Are you better at solving problems now than you were 20 years ago? Is that, is that, is that the evolution of a career? Um, no, because um, it would, you, you have to create a new problem to, be, to remain interested. There's absolutely, it's, it's very boring to make a painting that you've already made, so there has to be a separate problem. Um, and you're having to avoid, it's avoiding yourself. Like when you find, when you ask Bryce about finding your own voice, most of the time you're trying to, when you're young, you're avoiding everybody else's voice because it's absolutely pointless making somebody else's painting. You know, so like I absolutely love Bryce's paintings, but, and when I was just a student, I'd go and see Bryce's paintings and I'd want to make them, but totally pointless because he's made them. But he, he taught me one wonderful thing. I always thought that they were um, uh, uh, um, immaculate because mostly I'd seen them in reproduction. And so I was starting to try and make immaculate paintings. And then it was a nightmare. I wasn't making it. And so I went to the Tate and I had a look at one. Um, and I'm looking at the edge and it was all made. And I might be wrong, but it felt like there was a cigarette butt stuck to the side still in paint. And I was like, oh my God, this is brilliant. I'm, he's, he actually makes these things. This is stuff made. And um, it gave me a huge um, fillet to um, get back into the studio and start to use paint. Bryce, was there a cigarette butt there? You might as well. No. <laughs> <laughs> close, close, close. But that, you know, you know that it really is that point, you know, when uh, you find out you're making things that um, don't exist. And you may, you're you're putting them out into the world. I mean, that you talk about that moment when you know you're a painter or whatever. That's 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 it. Does the anxiety of influence go away as you get older? I mean, what Gary's articulated is that fear that a lot of young creative people have is that you know there's reverence for the past, but in some ways there's the killing the father figure and there's the anxiety of being seen as t too derivative. D does that get easier or just different? I'm, I'm, Sorry, the, the, the anxiety, Harold, Harold Bloom's phrase, isn't it, about the anxiety of influence, being, being seen to be too close to um, the, the art of the past, or it could be even the present, too. No, I'm, I, well, I, you know, I, I worry about that, and I don't worry about it. I mean, there are some artists that just really interest you, and, you know, I, you know probably I look at them more carefully than I, I don't know ones I'm not interested in. I'm less interested in contemporary art now, basically because it's so hard to follow. I mean, I live up in the country, you know, and it's hard to get to the galleries, get to the museums, see all the shows, all of, you know. That. I was stru I'm struck in, in your present show by the relationship to history, but it seems in a, an obtuse or sometimes... Um, a carefully considered way, but also there are certain fortuitous connections. Paul Hills, who, who's written the essay for the catalogue, for example, works out that in the Terravert paintings, uh, the, the strip at the bottom, which I think Gary was alluding to, where process is revealed in your work, which I'd love to talk about more in a minute, you've expend, extended it this time. And so there's still the veil of, of the first coating of, of Terravert, but then there's the process, the splashes. But he says that the proportion of that strip at the bottom is the same as a predella on a Renaissance altarpiece. Um, I, I'm not asking if that was conscious or not. It clearly wasn't. But I quite like the fact that that kind of connection is, is, is possible to be made. Yeah, I, li I really liked his read of the paintings. I like that. I was much more interested in the square. Uh, it's a six by six foot square. And uh, I had always avoided the square because I thought the square, 
it's perfect, you know. So painting on square, you, you can't help, you, you can't miss, you know. And plus, being at Yale, there's all this Albers stuff, you know. I mean, they didn't teach you Albers, uh, but it pervaded. And uh, so I avoided it. And then, you know, then, then it just kept coming up. A couple of years ago, it just started coming up. I had these six by eight for canvases. And I just flipped one one day, marked on it. And I liked it, so I've just been working with it. It's interesting because that shift in format, uh, because you, your work has, as you say, has been the kind of rectangular format has been almost um, all pervasive. Um, that now there's a shift. Whereas you, Gary, have worked in different formats continuously throughout your career. That, well, I've tried that, to avoid a square. Like I just, you know, I can feel completely different about a square to Bryce. I think a square is a complete nightmare uh, <laughs> because it, you can't get any. I can't get any tension in it. Um, and because I paint, Bryce makes sort of like singular moments where you just where he doesn't like an image, and I absolutely like an image. I want to make a picture, and Bryce wants to make. I mean, I want to make a picture that is a thing that you lose yourself in, but it's always a picture. And Bryce never wants a picture of anything. He's trying to get rid of the goddamn picture to, just to make the thing. And so a square for Bryce might be a completely fantastic place where all tension is dissipated because it's all going off evenly on all sides. But for me, because I make a picture, that's a complete nightmare because actually I want tension. I want there to be an anxiety between you know, that area and that area. Um, so... And then material changes, really, it's just following the material. Um, so I follow the paint, and like any, anybody in any life, but particularly an artist, you're working with a material and you think you know it, and you're using it um, to um, um, solve a problem or to mitigate a circumstance, but you're not actually looking at what you've got. Um, at the moment, I've got these works on paper, and I was doing them for a couple of years as sketches, without looking at them as actual things. And I would then transform them into um, paintings on aluminium. And it was only when one of those paintings, as they switched from paper to aluminium, uh, it was terrible, the painting I made on aluminium. It was so boring and so awful. I couldn't understand it because I loved my sketch. Um, and I had to take a step back and relook and go, oh, I've probably done it already. And as soon as I realized that I'd done it already, then the nature of the material of my paint changed um, and it looked completely different so I don't really know what I'm saying anymore but it's about <laughs> keep uh, it's about keeping your eyes it's amazing how often you can't you don't see what's in front of you and um, like the very early days of life drawing um, you have to forget that a vase is a vase it's just a load of shapes um, even in, within your own work and in your in all your mistakes and things you have to forget what you think they are and um, actually look at it. This, Bryce, that idea about looking in, intently at, at the thing as it emerges, I mean, in this new series that you've done, there is a, a, a significant shift in the sense that it's a, it's a conceptual, it's a conceit, really, or it's, it's a framework that you've given yourself. There'll be ten canvases, and you're going to explore ten different industrial uh, types of tervet pigment. Once you've established that... Is it still the same process for you? I mean, it, or have you just got to go through the process of putting a set number of layers on each, and then and then it's finished? Um, no, it started out, you know, like well, there you know you could have hired it out, you know, you know this is the idea you do this and this one's going to be this, and. My concern was, I, I think, the, the more layers there were, the more I painted on the, the blacker they got. And uh, as I painted them, number one, you work through a kind of physical thing. They're all, each one of them is different physically, the paint. Uh, and then you kind of get used to that, but then it starts changing. It became much more of an organic thing as I worked on them. 
So, so it wasn't a matter of like doing 10 layers. It was a matter of finishing the painting. And uh, so some had 10 layers, some had 12 layers, and you know, was, they became, there were, you were involved in the act of painting. Because yeah, it seemed to me physical. like it was not a that that was just a not a, it's not a conceptual work, you know. Like a conceptualist would have gone, there's ten layers, and here's your here's yeah, here, yeah, here's yeah. what it looks like. But you're well, you're not what, a conceptualist. You might have yeah, used it as yeah, a. Yeah, started well. I got these ten things. I'm not going to be three. You do that. You do that. And then as I worked on them, it became much more. Of, it got further and further away from that. Uh, those kind of ideas. And they became, you know, like much freer painting ideas. You know. Well, what surprised you about that journey or, or that process? I mean, d did the paintings have a connection to how you thought they would emerge? Or were you totally surprised as you worked through each of the 10, ten paintings? <sighs> there was so much sort of going on personally. And uh, these paintings just came much faster than my paintings usually do. And uh, there was this kind of freedom. Uh, and so here I'm working on the most constricted thing. And it feels unbelievably free. Uh, And it, you know, it was you know you were a bit surprised that it turned out as well as you thought, and in, the, in that it did change, you know, the concept. You went from concept to whatever, you know. And I, anyway, it took me a long time. I mean, I spent a lot of time just sitting, looking at them, trying to figure it out. What you know, what the hell's going on? You know, watching paint dry. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I think I take the point absolutely. The, the conceptual idea is the beginning, you know. But oh, it's not just me as a literalist, but I, I am fascinated by, and it probably won't surprise either of you, how different 10 different kinds of paint that purports to be the same pigment from a kind of clay, a clay based iron silicate paint, just how fundamentally different the stuff is in each one. So, I mean, I, there is something. Illustrative is the wrong word, but I'm fascinated by, you know, this is Holbein paint, this is Winder and Newton, and so on and so on. Um, I suppose that's a non-painter's response, isn't it? Because paint is different. But except for you, Gary, household paint, gloss paint that you use, is there's a kind of freshness that is there in the can and is there on the, the surface. The, the shift isn't as surprising, or is it? Um, well, I've obviously... As you could have guessed, I'm, I'm absolutely not interested in the different brands of paint having slightly different <laughs> colours because uh, um, Bryce could have mixed all those colours if... if I mean, he the, might have done, but He I'm might just, have done yeah, yeah. if those colours didn't already exist that he perchance found that he bought one tube on a Monday and he, they didn't have it on a Tuesday, bought another completely different bloody colour. So that becomes a series of interests. Um, but... Um, like Bryce's paintings are, are like from nature, I always feel like the actual, actual nature, act, the actual world comes out of Bryce's paintings, and his the oil paint loves that. Um, oil paint is like made made from nature. So many of the pigments, you know, all come from the ground and everything. Whereas my paint is purely industrial. All of its colours, uh, none of them actually come from the earth. They all come from chemical um, compounds. Um, and rather than it being actual nature, um, it's what we do to nature. So my paint is more like the world we live in rather than the world that we're of. Um, and that's the you know, a paradox of my love of Bryce's painting. See, there's a, sim a similarity would be um, how now, how I used to project my paintings onto white grounds. And the white ground was to enable me to feel like the image is arriving, like a movie. Um, and then just looking at Bryce's paintings now, I just saw that I then changed that. I got fed up with that. I got fed up with the quickness of it. 
of the fact that I was catching something and I wanted to then grow the painting. So I changed the ground to brown. So then you just change your mindset about how a painting develops. So rather than the painting arriving, I wanted the painting um, arriving on it, I wanted the painting to grow out of it. And so if you look at paint Bryce's paintings, Bryce's paintings always grow from the surface. You never feel like he's, even though everything's incredibly physical, and it's all put on and put on, it, you, you can't help but feel like they've, they've, they're sort of like slowly coming towards you, as if it's an actual growth. Um, now, my paintings don't really look like that, but um, that's how it feels, making them, just by doing a very simple thing of changing the colour of your ground. Bryce's paintings, particularly the new series, are also very immersive, aren't they? They overwhelm, whereas yours, repel is the wrong word. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I meant in terms of the reflection of light and surface, they're, they're, they, they have a, they, they repel in a profound way. I, just, I wasn't listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> they repel in a profound way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, let's think about what it. I, uh, uh, love about Gary's paintings is they're adventurous. And the image, the results is, you know, is part of this adventure, but, the, but your taking it all in is like, it's usually quite adventurous. It's, a, it's an exciting, nothing about process or anything like that. It's just like what he comes up with is just incredible. Uh, and I say in incredible in the sense that it's like maintaining a certain sense of adventure. And uh, I I, that's what I've always liked about his work. Did you hear that? I did. <laughs> that, you, you've, you've got the remark now for your CV, that's exactly right. Uh, th thanks for s saving the day, Bryce, that's really good. Cause we have been friends for some time, but not after this. Um, let's talk about light, if we can, briefly, because um, obviously you both work with it and um, harness it or explore it in different ways. I think that's... I'll have one more go and dig myself out of the grave. Um, I mean, light in your work, Gary, is literally some reflected off the surface of, of, of the aluminium where, where there are gaps, but also gloss paint itself re reflects hugely. And that's still the case with the work on paper. But because the paint has contracted slightly, the surface has contracted, you get this amazing fluid or diffused light. Um, the paint I use is, you know, just household gloss paint. And so it is an incredibly beautiful material. It's, it's just uh, oil paint dries and gloss paint sets. It has a very different effect. It flows, but it's, um, one of its properties that is so fantastic is it reflects. Um, and if you're a painter like me, who never learnt the skills to be able to paint properly, to be able to take the light from the world rather than reproduce the light on the canvas, is, was just truly fantastic. Um, and being able to, so you, you, I can get the reflections of the room. Um, I can have time. Um, be, again, trying, even though all my paintings have got images, I, I try, and they all have permissions, but uh, they start off as a, as a story that gives me permissions. Um, um, I, don't, I don't want a journey in the paintings. I want them to be singular um, with, um, just, just a place. Um, how do I get? Uh, but to, uh, rambling a bit. But to have the, the natural light moving, um, it keeps them alive, um, and it's it just it feels cheeky. It feels like I'm just t I'm taking the sun. I'm taking the fact that we're on a planet, um, and I'm using it rather than replicating it. Which I guess is a bit like the way I say that the colours themselves are not part of the Earth. They're um, they're, they're, they're sort of like simulacrums of it. Um, the wrinkled paper, that has such a different effect with light because um, you no longer, there's no longer any reflection. There's only um, um, diffused reflection. So um, there's a fluidity to it that um, breaks the... Um, again, it keeps it all whole, but it breaks the image down from um, um, being a singular moment. And sort of as an aside, one of the most 
exciting paradoxes about it is that you can't take photographs of it um, because it, there is no actual thing that you're looking at because the thing is entirely re reliant on light to make it visible. And a photograph, they try to fix um, an object as if it is the real moment. And to make paintings that, um, if you see them in real life, you go, oh, I didn't know it looked like that. I think that's a real um, gift that painting can give. And an increasingly valuable gift in a world where everything is mediated constantly. That there is an actual real life moment, eyes, you know, and heart and brain in front of something. So that is why light is so great. And in my case, my painting loves to reflect it back to you. Bryce, you said that colour was a way of revealing light, I think. You said at some stage. You did, yeah. <laughs> um, you, you have... Uh, actually, before I... Gary, um, you make the point you can't photograph your paintings. You're right, you have to stand at an angle. And, uh, but I did photograph your work yesterday, and in fact, with, even with the, the lens of a digital camera, if you get close, actually, the lens, the, the richness of the surface and the, the character of the surface is almost revealed it, it, it more deeply by a camera lens than, um, than the naked eye. In other words, you have to get very close up. I, mean, I remember having an argument with the, uh, the cameraman years ago about the, ca I mean, the, the human eye sees much more, and he just showed to prove me wrong, and of course now this is a given. But it is extraordinary how the, the detailing, the richness of, of your surface um, is possibly capturable by... Photography in a way that it, it isn't it, it, it isn't with Gary's. Um, how does light play as an active element when you make painting? I mean, you're ob obviously you have different studios in different places, and I want to talk about the different quality of place. But how much is light something that you are consciously trying to harness, and how much is it something that becomes revealed through the process? All I can say is, you know, if you don't, there's nothing without light. It affects the way you see something. Painting this, the same painting in Greece, or painting a painting in Greece and trying to paint that same painting in another light, you know, it's just, it just it doesn't work, you know. I don't know, I'm not being very clear because I don't really understand the question. I had John Curran come up to my house in America and he went, oh, the green light must really affect you, you know. I said, have you ever seen my paintings? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, uh, but the, what is just truly fantastic is um, uh, the gloaming. When, you know, you'll just take a an end of a day and the light goes down and you make sure all the lights are off in your studio and you just you get this unbelievable pleasure of watching everything change and then disappear i mean that is like heaven because you're making all these movement changes throughout the day and then you can relax with a cup of tea in a chair and you can actually watch the world do that to the paintings and um it's like owning them for a bit, rather than working on them. Yeah, that's a, yeah, I totally agree with that. And, uh, I mean, I'm up on the Hudson, you know, whether it's Hudson River School Painters, and I keep thinking, oh, this is, I'm going to start painting like the Hudson River School Painters, you know, and uh, um, there's no way, you know, because I don't paint that, you know, and I don't paint a light. I just, uh, but that, there's, there's hardly anything better than just sitting there watching the light change on the paintings. You know, it just, and some of them are just, some are made to do that more in a way, like Rothko. Um, but it's, it's really just one of my favorite things. Doing that, so I don't drink tea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I presume that you have 
four, at least four studios at the moment, partly because of the different light. So I'm actually over-projecting. Why do you have studios in Manhattan, upstate New York, Hydra, Pennsylvania, and maybe even Nevis? I mean, what, 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 do they, what do they give you, and why do you have so many possibilities? Well, the, those are places we go to, and we work where we go. Yeah. Both Helen and I are painters, and uh, we paint there. You know. So you have to have a studio, or you might as well have a studio. You know. uh, and there was no plan to it. Uh, but traveling has been a big part of, uh, you know, you travel, you're in some place, and uh, it has its effect. Lots of times you go back, you know, I would take, you know, you, you travel and you go back to the city and you paint a painting about it, you know. Uh, I did a bunch of Moroccan paintings, but now we got a place in Morocco, it'll be interesting to see what comes out painting there, you know, rather than painting in New York about it, you know. But I am one of my, one of my questions in my... Uh, For Gary, yeah. Yes. Um, was, it was about you know, being in Morocco and uh, what, what you come up with painting there and it been like a kind of, you know, we're in Marrakesh, which is like this monochromatic city. You know? It'd be interesting to see what comes up in terms of painting. Kind of almost bleached city. No, it's not bleached, it's anything, it's real color rich, you know. It's not bleached out at all. It's very intense. Uh, but it's, everything's pink, you know, or red or, or you know, whatever. But it's I went to Vienna, and I'd never been before, and um, I'm a great fan of Klimt. Um, and What's his name? I'll call the other one. Sheila. Oh, Sheila, yeah, but I mean Klimt. I'm a great fan of Klimt. And uh, I love his paintings. And I go to Vienna, and I think that he's done. He's doing something incredible. He's done something... Look out the window. It looks like Klimt. Everything's like that. <laughs> you think, oh, my God. He actually was painting what he looked at. I thought that he'd done this to, you know, to excite me. But, in fact, that was his view. So... You are going to end up with roses. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about drawing? Uh, have we got time just to talk about uh, the importance of drawing for both of you? Bryce, uh, in summary, how frequently do you draw? What's the relationship of drawing to painting for you? I... I draw a lot, and then they, but I usually, when I'm drawing, I'll draw. And lots of it has to do with kind of physical situation where you are, you know. You get a lot of, used to do a lot of drawing in hotel rooms. Uh, the drawings, it's a, it's a kind of a long process where you go from some really vague little idea type thing and just keep working it up up to a certain point and you start thinking, well, this will be a painting or this will be a group of paintings. Uh, so, yeah, drawing has a lot to do with it. But then, but then when I'm working on a painting, I'm not too, cons you know, I don't think about, I'm working on the painting, I don't think about it the same way as I do when I'm working on a drawing. There's something about a drawing, it's just like, it's more intimate, and uh, the painting is much more of a construct. Um, so if you, if you encounter any problems, as I'm sure you do, during the process of painting, drawing is not something you return to, and it's not something you do after the event 
to further explore or make sense of what you've done. It's, it's a kind of separate act that tends yeah. to, yeah, it's self-contained or is there at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gary. Um, I'm sort of like a bit scared of drawing because I'm not very good at it. Um, so I'm a bit nervous. And I always thought that like, if ever this moment happened, that I would say, oh, I could, you know, I draw every morning, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, uh, I've, I, I found it, I find it quite difficult, and um, part of the is I found that it's the material. Um, I've, um, recently, I went away with Georgie on a little residency thing, and I just took a pencil and some paper. And Georgie took all of her stuff, and it was a complete nightmare for me. Because I went, well, what have I got this for? What do I do? Um, and then I, got, I bought some pastels. So I could, I'm, I'm really enjoying drawing when it's material. So I can move pastels about and get a knife and scrape it off and put it back on and build it up and then size it and then add more and take it away. So if it's a material, I can move around and make something. Um, I really love drawing. But if it's like how I imagine an artist should be doing drawing, I'm really, I'm not very good at it. And I'm, it sort of scares me. And I'm um, looking for, I want it to be better than it is. And I haven't found my own voice, my own line in it. But for when I'm drawing for paintings, that's the other thing. So if I do a bit of a drawing and I like it, I like it for it being a skeleton for a painting. So I want to get straight onto the painting. And if the drawing is wrong in the painting, whatever you do, you can't find the painting. And you can just work and work and work and work and work, and you can't believe, you can't find the bloody painting until you finally admit that the drawing is wrong. And then you have to change the drawing, and then you can find the painting. So drawing is absolutely crucial, but it's really about speed um, and proportion and weight. Um, to, to compose, I guess. One well, thing I want to talk to you about before we throw you both to the floor is working in series. <laughs> um, the Terravert series, Bryce, you know, as, as I said, is, is almost preordained. There's, there's ten of them. But um, do you have a sense when you begin a series in general, how how expansive it's going to be, or is there is it part of it mirrors the process of painting an individual painting that actually it 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 will reveal itself to you as to how big the series needs to be uh, when it reveals itself. It's usually pretty set. Um, on these paintings. You know, I, I, I called my office and I said, get me Terravert painting. Yeah, get me a lot of Terravert paint, different brands. And some of the stuff I never even heard of, you know. Like, um, I have very erudite studio assistants, you know, and they come up with the Rublev painting. I mean, I've heard about Rublev, but I haven't, didn't know there was paint, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's usually there's some sort of it's it's like a set, and it's pretty well. It's not there's not you know there's an idea about each one, but I had, I wouldn't wouldn't bother trying them if I had any idea what they were going to look like. You know, I mean, I have, it, it's all a com complete surprise. But with something like the Grove series that you did, that's over a period of years. So that that's a, 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 I mean, a more open-ended series, I guess. And I'm curious. Well, no, to I just you know I had some some finish I didn't like them, so I repainted them, and then I said, well, I got this thing started. I got to finish it. So you know, I went back and did a couple of others. They're basically all the same ideas. You know, the later ones look different because you know you're just moving on in terms of your actual painting, the practice. You know. How much closure is that? I mean, when you complete a series, is that something that you, are con you consciously close down? Or is it inevitable that it suggests what you might do next, or it, it informs 
other series down the line in direct or obvious ways? Well, I think you know, anything, anything I do, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that that's, that's one of the products, is uh, what to do next. Uh, I'm having a hard time keeping up. <laughs> in terms of like, you have all these ideas, you know, like, and uh, getting the paintings done. Well, for 79, you're in incredible shape. So what is next? What does Terra Verde suggest to you? Or what are you going to work on next? Or what are you working on now? Next, I am finishing all the paintings that I've got started in the studio. I started counting them up <laughs> before a little, I don't know, I got about, you know, 12 paintings started. And I'd, you know, I'd like to finish them. And it's nice because some of them are monochromatic. And, you know, people are concerned that I'm doing monochromatic paintings again. You know. <laughs> so I have stuff, stuff, you know. Um, and then I have other paintings, like that letter paintings I'm trying to finish. I've got, you know, a lot of things going. And I want to finish them. Uh, and some of those are just barely even started, so. Uh. There's, uh, very few artists admit that it does get easier as they get more mature. But people do talk about the, trying to escape the facility or the ease with which sometimes the process can, can uh, be. How is it for you, the process of painting? Is it as it's always been? It's as problematic and as pleasurable? Or are there discernible shifts for you over, over the decades in, 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 in facility or complexity? I find that I spend much more time sitting looking at the paintings because I'm older. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and... And one of the things you figure out is how do I, how can I do it faster, you know? Never really figured it out, but you try. And, uh, but I spend a lot, yeah, more time just looking at them. It's not that I come up with different solutions or more solutions or whatever. I just like looking at them. It's, you know, heartbreaking. You're gonna send these things out. And, you don't see them anymore, you know. You think, Jesus, why are you making them? <laughs> I mean, yes, you have to be, uh, share it with the world and all that kind of, I'd rather just sit around and look at them. Yeah. But then you get, you're kind of tired of it. I mean, it's the weird thing about these new paintings is that, you know, like, they didn't, they don't adhere to the rules that sort of develop and, you know, I, the process of finishing them was like very, very different than the way it used to be. And uh, I had, I did this big painting and it took me a long time to make it, you know, and then, then all these ideas came up in the process of making it, blah, blah, blah. And I think that's changed, that helped change my thinking about a lot of things. You know, like uh, what I'll allow. You know, there are things in the big painting that I've never gotten anywhere. And uh, And now I can go for those things. Yeah, um, well, well, so take those individual bits that you never found a solution for, and they're now something that you can use. No, what? So you said that there's the bits that got nowhere, but now you can get somewhere with them. Is that on like making the great big painting that took years? So loads of things that didn't work they sort of like have remained yeah. in your memory and you've gone, oh, before I changed that to try and find the painting, 
that very thing that I changed, that now I can have, because it's not attached to the great big painting. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah, th there were things that really got resolved in the big painting. And they were sort of surprise resolutions. One of them was sort of going back to the monochromatic thing. And then in going back to the monochromatic thing, you know, you just think, well, what was I doing when I, what was I thinking about when I did this? And you're thinking about certain ideas about balance and weight and blah, blah, blah. And um, whereas in the, the big one, I was just going for beauty. You know, let's just make this make sense in a very beautiful way. When you encounter works you've made over the decades, and in fact, when you encounter works of yours installed in a survey or, or, or a, a retrospective, does it become clear to you that certain works are kind of key key moments in your career, kind of staging posts where things, things happen? Or is that the art historical view? It's what art historians, is what we, we curators or art historians always try and do to make sense of, 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 um, of a career. Yeah, I, yeah I, that's... You know, so they say, well, we're going to put a bunch of things together, blah, 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 you know, and I, I always, there's things I want to see, and it's, it's kind of a curatorial view and uh, it doesn't work out too well, you know. I mean, it's no better than the other or whatever, you know. Like, uh, uh, so, you know, there's lots of things I'd like to re-see. I mean, like this group, this group, you know, that is, here's ten paintings and boom, they're gone, you know. Yeah, never to be brought back together again. Yeah, you know, or, or in some sort of, Lame way, you know. Uh, yeah. I thought I was rude to Gary by saying that his paintings repel, but you've just said the act of curating is basically bringing a bunch of things together in a lame way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like things I've the honour of my profession. One of the lovely things I, I don't really like seeing my paintings out and about, I just get embarrassed. But what is really lovely is touching them. Because as soon as, when I'm looking at it over there, sort of thing, if I do, um, I'm like, oh, God, you know, I don't really want to look at that. But if I touch it, everything um, comes back. I remember making it entirely. I remember every, every mark, everything. I remember why I made it. And when I'm just looking at it, I think, well, why the hell did I make that? But when I touch it, I know. And that's a really fantastic um, little time travel um, um, diary of your life. Does that re resonate with you at all, Bryce? Well, yesterday I was going around touching my paintings. You know, and the, and the guards are there, and I'm saying, like, I'm, the I'm, the, I'm the only one that can do this. <laughs> so I'm going to do it. It's pretty, Peter Blake once told me that he, he had a small display at the Tate, and he, there was a bit of muck on the painting, and he went and sort of just did that, and the guard told him off, and Peter's quite distinctly looking. And Peter said, well, I'm the artist, and the guard said, well, you should know better. Which I thought was <laughs> <laughs> but one of my first, you know, talking about hitchhiking, cutting school, hitchhiking in New York, we're going to this Picasso show at the Modern and touching a Picasso. You know, just sneaking up and sidling up to it. And then. <laughs> yeah, you and Tony Shafrazi, you know. Um, um, and did, what, what did the touch do for you? I mean... It did a lot. You know, it's like... Uh, it put, you know, it's like it put you in a place that was the place of the artist, even though it was uh, this kind of weird, sort of surreptitious act or whatever. But, uh, you know, that's, we begin to identify with, you know, what, what goes on. I mean, why, 
what's with what, what's with these things? Why have for you know ever people made paintings? You know what is this weird fascination? And uh, it's, that's sort of the start of the uh, well, journey or whatever. Mm -hmm. Did you when you were at um, a guard at the Jewish Museum in 1964, did you touch Jasper John's painting? Yeah, I ever, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I went around, I went around. I, I, was, I, I was doing the, um, had the early work in, in my room. And I could flip open all the boxes <laughs> and, you know, make my own combinations. <laughs> You know, and you know they always have the, the penis one closed, and I could open it. And, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, what, no wonder they won't lend it to us now. It was obviously knackered by you in 1964. <laughs> and, and and it's funny because obviously institutionally we vehemently tell people they can't touch, but I've always made the argument, speaking to children, um, that there's nothing to be gained by touching the surface of a painting anyway. I'm being slightly disingenuous because it's just a way of saying to them, look, it just feels like paint on canvas. But we, we always have this desire to touch things. But what it actually reveals to a non-painter, I think, is it, it, it's not irrelevant, but it's just I want to touch it because it's there. Hearing you talk, both and you talk about your own work, that it, it's more, it, it's kind of a mythic, quasi-spiritual connection. It's that you're saying it's, it's to feel or to be in the place of the artist. And I suppose... Painting is about touch as well as many things, and therefore to touch someone else's work, the surface of someone else's work, or your own, is to engage with it in a different well, way. Well, it's, it's to recognise its physicality, that it's actually arrived. I mean, like, one of the great yeah. things about great paintings is that you look at them and you just believe them to have always been there. You think, oh, my God, look at that, that's beautiful. And it's, the reason it's great is because you believe it and you've actually forgotten, as soon as you look at it, that, that there, was no, there is nothing underneath it all of that stuff is put on someone put it on and to touch it you you remember that there's actually it started off as empty and that moment of from emptiness to full you get through the physical and, and that, it becomes exciting because there's they're engaged again as it is when the artist is making it when you're making anything um, we're being streamed here, and if, uh, if anyone comes to the Jasper John show and touches a painting and says that Bryce Marden and Gary Hume said that was a good thing to do, it's no excuse. I had to, when, with, with Jasper's show, two kids came in, and they stood in the doorway, and then they took off in different directions, and they were trying to touch every painting. <laughs> you know, they got about five before I could get them. <laughs> but it was, you know, but it's also that same thing. Why did these kids want to touch these paintings? I mean, it was you know, it was like a contest between them. But there was this whole thing about touching them. Uh, what about touching your own work, as Gary says later? Does that bring you closer to it, or do you know it enough for that not to mean anything in your case? No, no, no I don't think about touching it. No. I mean, I was, you know, picking bugs off one of the paintings yesterday. I said, well, we need tweezers. Yeah. It's the same about painting in the country, you know. Uh, yes. <laughs> the Upper Hudson River Valley uh, is very buggy <laughs> in the summer. And uh, I don't have air conditioning, and so I don't, but I can't open the windows because the bugs come in. That's all those bugs are really quite nice because at one point I was making things that were supposed to be perfect and I wanted them to be perfect. It was like it was against nature. I didn't know it was against nature. I thought it was for perfection. Um, and then bugs would land on them and then it would be ruined. So then I'd have to sand it all down. Hours and hours of work and repaint it and then I'd make plastic cloches and they'd have to be lifted very carefully so the dust didn't get disturbed and put them down. And then one day, I just thought, what am I doing? The world isn't perfect. Or the perfect world is with all of this action going on. I must just be able to use my fingernail and get the daddy long legs off because this is, this, this is the world. And, and recognising that made a lot of, of, of um, activities much freer.
I wasn't squeezing myself into this, some awful, impossible place. I was accepting um, chance, um, everything happening. Beautiful. On which note, I will throw you to the floor now. Are there questions for uh, Bryce and Gary from the floor? Hi. Um, I'd like to ask a question about the line in both of your works. Um, for you, Bryce, I'd like to... Um, I'd love it if you could tell me more about your um, early drawings that you did, the series of ink drawings of suicide notes. And um, Gary, I'd like to know more about uh, the ridge in your work and how it's, it's become more ridgy over the, over the years. And, and how on earth do you do that as well? Please, thank you. Spoken like a, an artist, as you are. I did the suicide drawings really just trying to break away from a very strict rectangular... So I was going into the rectangle, and that's basically what it, I mean, it was a discipline. Yeah, that's basically, that's it. Um, my ridges, they come and go, and, um, but the main purpose of the ridges, well, there's two purposes of the ridges. One is because um, I used to think of, um, I used to look at my paintings as if, I, as if I was out at space, and then I was looking down at my paintings, and that these were, um, um, tectonic plates that were moving and I'd, so I'd, they'd be shifting and I would sort of like watch them shift until they finally settled and so these the ridges of the paint were to allow were these different plates moving until finally they made a picture so that was one reason for it and then the other reason is because I don't paint light I only ever use light that's hanging around um, I can actually um, by making a ridge I can have a line of light so I can actually put light, um, only in the thin lines, but I can put light glints where I want them. And I can't tell you how I do it. <laughs> I can, but it's a bit boring. But. <laughs> question there. Hi, this is a question for Bryce. Um, I've just been looking recently at your prints, and I was wondering um, if you could tell me more about your approach to printmaking, um, I think from the early 70s. Um, and whether you felt that it had been a real challenge to work in that medium, or if you felt it had really flowed, um, and also if it had affected the way that you thought about your practice and think about your practice in other media. I've, yeah, when I was doing the prints, I uh, tried to do it as traditionally as possible, and I thought of them as you you know I would do smaller drawings, bigger drawings, then. With the prints, I could get more physical. It, it, there was just on the, you know, another stage on the way to making a painting. It was one right, sort of before going into the paintings. Um, but I haven't been making prints lately. It's no longer part of the process. Something that's uh, come up to the surface from both of you uh, several times is, is. Um, questions to do with you know problem solving and but also then questions of uh, of kind of freeing yourself from the prop from the solving of problems into some kind of free space and uh, I just wondered if either of you had a thought about the the kind of drive which is uh, fantastic that comes off both of you, this kind of drive of painting. And um, if there might be a relationship between the drive to paint and, uh, and a kind of uh, seeking to be free, if that makes any sense. I mean, you know, there's always this thing where you said you say, but then he was really painting, or they were really painting. You know, so when you lose the whole consciousness and you're just doing the thing, you know, I'd still look for that moment. I sort of believe in what you're talking about. Like two summers ago, I took um, two months off, didn't paint, and I've painted every day virtually for like 30 odd years. And uh, I was tired. So uh, I was just in the garden, we got a little bit of land, and I was like bringing down trees and things like that. So I, every, when I had to do something, so I was solving problems. I had to learn how to bring a tree and it mustn't hit the chicken house, you know, things like that. And it hit the chicken house and then how do I get it off? And I had the most fantastic summer and every night I'd be very tired 
and I'd be very fulfilled because I'd had a problem and I'd solved it. And I thought, oh my God, this is like, this is life. This is, seems completely fantastic. Um, and then I went back into my studio at the end and I realised that what I really love more than anything is um, unprovable solutions to problems. That I've got hundreds of problems and I can't prove that I've solved it. All I know is it feels solved. And so that is sort of like the drive to carry on, trying to feel the a proof of a problem that I can only ask you to believe me. And then in terms of the, that painting I'm um, painting now, I do like three paintings, three types of paintings. Good paintings, which are like, I just think, oh, that's good, I'm pleased with that. I do interesting ones that aren't necessarily good, but they, they're really interesting. And then I do very occasionally magic paintings that you, I just don't know how I did it. Um, I thought I was going to do something else, and I think, oh, I'll use that instead, and I, and I do it. And generally they're quick, because if they're magic, like a trick, it's a quick thing. And then I, uh, oh my God, that's a magic painting. That's just turned up. That's um, fantastic. But they're not, they're, they're incredible when they happen, and then a bit disheartening, because they're magic, and you can't make another one straight afterwards. How often do paintings fail to the point where you can't retrieve them? I, I never give up. <laughs> uh, I, I keep going as well, but I do give up. Um, and uh, to, I have like racks, and uh, it's sort of, I've just done a, a stripping, like a nitromos stripping period of paintings. Um, They've been there for like you know up to twenty years or something, um, and when I'd pull out the racks, it was like an alternative me. So all terrible paintings that were mine, but because there were so many of them, it started to look. Well, hold on, this is like this could actually be real. Uh, uh, for me, it's always the drawing is wrong, and I've, I don't have the wherewithal to find the correct the drawing in the painting to make the painting. But um, one of the things that is very lovely about time, so how long does it take to resolve a painting, is that um, you, you, take the, um, you take the moment out of the painting that you're making. Oh, and so I, I just was in America and I've got old chicken coops and there's, there's, I open a tin of paint and I just love the colour of this brown. It's just, and I want to paint everything brown. And I, think, I just want to cover everything in brown and then I pull out these old crappy things that I can paint and so I paint them all brown and then I see Georgie and I say I want to I think I want to paint the chairs brown and she's you know what that's what mad people do like just paint them. <laughs> and, uh, and I go to the go to the chicken groups and I drag out these old paintings that are just really terrible and one I paint all brown cover and that's quite good and the other and the other one that has just been sat there and it's all got birds have shut down and I've washed it I really like it and what I've cleaned it, obviously. But whatever, what, whatever it was that was um, 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 unpalatable to me at the time is no longer un unpalatable. And it, I don't know whether I've made some things that have now made that able to have its own voice. And previously, it couldn't, it couldn't exist because it was all alone. So, um, yeah. Oh, I am mad, yeah. <laughs> I love the unpalatable, well, got a pun, it's profound as well, but uh, also, in a sense, what you're agreeing with, I mean, you're the same as Bryce, you never give up, but you, you, it's a longer process of not giving up. You, you give up for a time and then come back to it, and there are ways still of you wanting to resolve those works. Well, it's that lovely thing, you've got the thing in the, you know, there's a thing in the corner over there, and you're doing another job, and you think, oh, I need to, if I do this to this, um, that will be better, and then you just go like that, and then you go, oh, hold on, actually, you need this. And then you go over and start working on that. I don't think it matters at all. Uh, final question. Um, Bryce, you said uh, recently, sorry to throw your quotes at you, but it's a great quote. You, you said, I think painters are among the priests. The work, the, the, they're the, the worker priests at the cult of, of cult of man. Where, and I think the other phrase was constantly seeking to understand but never to know. Um, do you stand by the notion that painters are, uh, um, are among the priests? Is that, is that the best broad description of what painters are? I got a lot of hell for that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. 
I mean, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty good. I haven't been checking too closely lately whether they are. <laughs> Gary? Um, I don't know, because I, like um, I don't like the separation. I like, I, like, I like being in there. And so this sense of, um, of, of specialness, I, I get un I'm, I'm uncomfortable with. I like it being, um, I prefer to have a sh you know, shopping trolley and moving about like that. I, uh, um, I, I think I'd become, I mean, I really don't think Bryce has, but I'd, I'd become too um, self-serving. I'm not interested in it. I'm going to end on a self-serving note. We have an exhibition opening next week exploring the relationship between Dali and Duchamp, which is quite a surprising one. The artists that are seen as kind of opposite poles, but who actually share much more in common than you might think, which may be something that's been revealed in the course of this conversation. Bryce Marden and Gary Hume, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs>